This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu to purchase this book. The title of this book is Systematic Theology in Two Volumes by Rusas John Rushduni. Copyright 1994. Ross House Books. Volume 1. Chapter 3. Creation and Providence. Section 1. Creation and Holiness. In the modern era, theology has been marked by a division between modernist theology and ecclesiastical theology. Modernist theologies are governed by the spirit of the age and are marked by a belief that truth is the discovery of man in every field, including religion. Truth, moreover, has no absolute validity. It is an existential truth, one relative to the age and the spirit of the times. Since the universe is evolving and is in process, so too man and truth are in process, and no truth exists in abstraction or separation from the universe. Man, therefore, cannot seek or know truth except in the existential context. For Oliver Wendell Holmes, quote, Truth was the majority vote of that nation that could lick all others, end quote. Most modernists would not state the case so crudely, but in essence, truth is derived from the general will of mankind. Ecclesiastical theology, the doctrine of the worshipping institution, has been ostensibly the theology of the Word of God. If, however, the Word of God, Scripture, is viewed with alien presuppositions, then that theology expresses not Scripture, but the Word of man. Modernism sees the universe as a self-generated process. Truth is then the direction of that process, and it too is self-generated, or can be man-created and man-developed. For ecclesiastical theology, truth is Jesus Christ. But truth, or Jesus Christ, is then seen as the process of abstracting God's people out of an alien world into a fortress church as a stage on the way to heaven. While the universe is said to be God-created, it is seen as on an alien course, so that the believer and the universe part company and seek divergent directions. Since Darwin and his view of a universe of struggle, amoral and purposeless, this separation of Christian faith from the context and direction of history and the world has been aggravated. But, as Burkhoff stressed, the doctrine of creation is emphatic, quote, that God is the origin of all things, and that all things belong to Him and are subject to Him, end quote. In fact, the doctrines of creation and providence require us to view God's purposes concerning man and the world as a unity. God made the world and man, Genesis 1 and 2. Both are fallen, and both are predestined for redemption, recreation, and a new creation with the general resurrection. Romans 8, 18-23, 1 Corinthians 15, 12-58, etc. The original commission or creation mandate to man to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it, Genesis 1, 26-28, is restated after the fall to Noah, Genesis 9, 1, through 7. It is at the heart of the covenant, Genesis 9.17. Abraham and his seed are called for this purpose, and obedience to the law is given to Moses as the means of dominion. Whereas sin undermines dominion and brings judgment and damnation, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. The commission to Joshua again sets forth this mandate, Joshua 1, 1-9. And the great commission from the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ applies it again to all the world, Matthew 28, 18-20. The commission or mandate to the first Adam in Eden was for all the world also, and Eden was the pilot plot where man was to learn, under God, how to subdue the earth. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 45-47, sends out his people into all the world with the command to teach all nations, Matthew 28, 19. This means not only converting and baptizing them, but teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, Matthew 28:20. 20. And this includes the law, Matthew 5:17-20, Luke 16:17. The doctrine of providence tells us that God is mindful of and includes in his government concern an eternal plan 
the sparrow, the hairs of our head, and the flowers of the field. Matthew 10, 29-30, 6-26-34. The whole of creation, Paul tells us, awaits expectantly the general resurrection. Romans 8, 19-23. Just as the earth, while not conscious, responds to gravity, and the flower turns towards the sun, so the ground beneath our feet, the stars overhead, and all living creatures are governed in their being by the coming event, their new or renewed creation at Christ's coming. Calvin affirmed this fact in his comments on Romans 8.21, while warning against speculation about the details of this simple affirmation. Quote, it is then indeed meet for us to consider what a dreadful curse we have deserved, since all created things in themselves blameless, both on earth and in the visible heaven, undergo punishment for our sins. For it has not happened through their own fault, that they are liable to corruption. Thus the condemnation of mankind is imprinted on the heavens, and on the earth, and on all creatures. It hence also appears to what excelling glory the sons of God shall be exalted, for all creatures shall be renewed, in order to amplify it, and to render it illustrious. But he means not that all creatures shall be partakers of the same glory with the sons of God, but that they, according to their nature, shall be participators of a better condition, for God will restore to a perfect state the world, now fallen, together with mankind. But what that perfection will be, as to beasts as well as plants and metals, it is not meet nor right in us to inquire more curiously, for the chief effect of corruption is decay. Some subtle men, but hardly sober-minded, inquire whether all kinds of animals will be immortal. But if reins be given to speculations, where will they at length lead us? Let us then be content with this simple doctrine, that such will be the constitution and the complete order of things, that nothing will be deformed or fading. I find, when I cite Calvin's statement, that most ecclesiastical theologians find his words repellent and disconcerting. They seem to prefer an empty new creation, devoid of all things save man. Scripture indeed speaks of the destruction of the old creation, Isaiah 34, 4, Revelation 6, 14, 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13. But it also speaks of the great regeneration, Matthew 19, 28, and of the restitution of all things, Acts 3, 21. It is a Neoplatonist horror of matter which leads to the exclusion of the material universe from the new creation and the general resurrection. Scripture gives us another perspective, Revelation 21, 1 through 22, 5. Calvin, on the other hand, sees animals, plants, and metals as a part of God's creation, his eternal purpose, and his providence and new creation. This means that man cannot view his life here, nor in the world to come, in abstraction from the world he lives in. God's laws governs his relationship to that world, and God's creation mandate or commission requires man to establish a dominion over all things in terms of God's word and purpose. Biblical holiness is thus not a Neoplatonic spirituality and abstraction from material concerns, but a dominion in and over material and spiritual matters in terms of God's law. Holiness involves a relationship to God, to our own being, to other people, and to the world around us in terms of God's law and His creation mandate. It means that we are always before God in word, thought, and deed, in very practical and mundane matters, the Bible is clear that holiness comes with faithfulness to God's law in the routine affairs of life. The laws of holiness are thus very specific. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Ye shall fear every man his mother and his father, and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Turn ye not unto idols, nor make to yourself molten gods, I am the Lord your God. And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field. Neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard. Neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Ye shall not steal, neither deal falsely, neither lie one to another. And ye shall not swear by my name falsely. Neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19, 1-4 and 9-12. through 12. 
The laws of holiness deal with our sexual life, our hair and our beards, our fruit trees and our sanitation. Because God's purpose in time and eternity encompasses all of creation, His law similarly encompasses all of creation. If we take the doctrine of creation to be literally what God says it is in Genesis 1, then we will take His law equally seriously as a part of God's mandate and commission for the godly man in Eden and in Christ. The doctrine of creation is the affirmation and presupposition of the total word of God. Since God made all things, governs all things, and includes all things in His eternal decree, purpose, and eschatology, then no godly living is possible in abstraction from creation, nor apart from God's law. The doctrine of creation means that holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, Hebrews 12.14, is not a matter of Neoplatonic abstraction and spirituality, but of faith and the obedience of faith to the law of God. It means our relationship to God and to His creation in terms of His mandate and law. The definition of holiness does not change between Leviticus and Hebrews, because God does not change, Malachi 3.6, and the doctrine of creation does not change. Section 2. The Goodness of Creation In a very beautiful and moving paragraph, Calvin, commentating on Romans 9.14 and predestination, said, quote, The predestination of God is indeed in reality a labyrinth, from which the mind of man can by no means extricate himself. But so unreasonable is the curiosity of man, that the more perilous the examination of a subject is, the more boldly he proceeds, so that when predestination is discussed, as he cannot restrain himself within due limits, he immediately, through his rashness, plunges himself, as it were, into the depths of the sea. What remedy, then, is there for the godly? Must they avoid every thought of predestination? By no means, for as the Holy Spirit has taught us nothing but what it behooves us to know, the knowledge of this would, no doubt, be useful, provided it be confined to the word of God. Let this, then, be our sacred rule, to seek to know nothing concerning it, except what Scripture teaches us. When the Lord closes His holy mouth, let us also stop the way, that we may not go farther. End quote. Calvin's sacred rule should be ours as well. All too many men are bold where God's word is concerned, to dispute it or set it aside, when they are unable to govern even their wives or their children. Whether we deal with predestination, providence, or creation, or any other aspect of Scripture, the limits of our thought must be governed by God's word. This means that the pagan mentality must not intrude on our biblical perspective. Thus, for the Hellenic mentality, the superior, true, and valued world was the realm of ideas, of mind or spirit, whereas the realm of matter was formless, meaningless, and barren of value, unless dominated for a time by forms or ideas. Ideas or forms thus were the good, and matter was held to be good only to the extent that ideas governed and formed it. In Neoplatonism, this led to a depreciation of material things, to asceticism, and to a studied impracticality in mundane affairs. The Bible gives no ground for such an approach. God is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, physical and spiritual. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Colossians 1.16 All things, everything, Scripture makes clear was created very good. Genesis 1.31 The fall gives us no warrant for downgrading one aspect of creation and exalting another. Man has fallen in all his being, so that his mind and body, reason and will, eyesight and insight, are all equally affected by the fall. If to be spiritual is a virtue, then Satan, as a totally spiritual being apparently, would be supremely virtuous. The Bible is clear that, in and after the fall, God is still totally Lord over all creation and that he rejoices in it. Revelation 4.11 declares, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Romans 11.36 God, in speaking to Job, describes the majesty of his creation as against a view which made man the measure of events. God declares that he is the measure, his purpose is theocratic. 
but it includes therein all his creation and manifests his joy therein, a joy shared by the angels of heaven. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Job 38.4-7 But some will object. This has reference to creation before the fall. However, most of what God declares to Job about his creation has to do with the world after the fall, as, for example, God's delight in Behemoth. Behold now, Behemoth, which I made with thee, he eateth grass as an ox. Lo, now, his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. He is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. Surely the mountains bring him forth food, where all the beasts of the field play. He lieth under the shady trees, in the covert of the reed and fens. The shady trees cover him with their shadow. The willows of the brook compass him about. Behold, he drinketh up a river, and hasteth it not. He trusteth that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. He taketh it with his eyes. His nose pierceth through snares. Job forty fifteen through 24 Who or what is Behemoth? Some have identified him with the wild buffalo, the mammoth, and the elephant. Most perhaps have seen him as the hippopotamus. When I was a student, this passage was cited by a scholar in amused cynicism. How simple-minded to believe that God rhapsodized about an elephant or some like monster animal. No doubt, he felt that a professor is alone worthy of God's joy. More than a few theologians have agreed. The medieval rabbis, some heretics, Eucarius of Lyons, Gregory the Great, and most of the church fathers, Luther, and many more since, they have held that Behemoth is a symbolic representation of Satan. The text, of course, gives no ground for such an opinion. Rather, Man's egocentricity and his Neoplatonic tendencies make it difficult for him to believe that God can enjoy his creation, the hippopotamus, when he has man to enjoy. The opinion seems prevalent that it should be the chief end of God to glorify man and to enjoy him forever. But God the Lord identifies Behemoth, or the hippo, as the chief of the ways of God. Clearly, no theologian could have written the book of Job he would have placed more dignified tastes and appreciations in God's mind. In Proverbs 8.22, we find the same expression in Hebrew used to describe wisdom as the first of God's creative acts before the formation of the world. This means simply that the Lord uses the same expression to describe his creative joy in the hippopotamus as in describing God the Son. Let us recall Calvin's beautiful words of wisdom and seek neither to deny what God says, nor to know more than He chooses to reveal concerning Himself. What we are told makes clear God's delight in His creation. His purpose from all eternity is the regeneration and the restoration of all things through Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 19-23, Matthew nineteen twenty-eight, Acts three twenty-one, etc. The doctrine of creation thus militates against a man-centered perspective. Darwinism and the theory of evolution have fostered humanism and a radical anthropocentricity. In such a perspective, God does not exist, and all the world is an accident. Man is the sole light of reason in an empty universe. Such a humanist may talk about conservation and the protection of our natural environment, but he lacks the moral imperative for a sensible view. He, as God plans to either use or protect what he determines needs to be done, His moral roots are shallow and egocentric. God's care extends to all His creation. As Nehemiah 9.6 makes clear, Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, Solomon declares. He hath made everything beautiful in His time. Also He hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. Ecclesiastes 3.11 God's wisdom is in and behind all of creation. 
Proverbs 3.19, Isaiah 40, 12, 26 through 28, 45, 7, 12, 18, 48, 13, Jeremiah 10, 12, 51, 15 through 16, Amos 4, 13, 5, 8, 9, 6, Zechariah 12, 1, Acts 7, 50, 14 and 15, etc. Many Psalms celebrate God as Creator. Psalm 8, 3, 19, 1, etc. All this makes clear that charnel house theology is not scriptural. Too many theologians, past and present, have seen the material aspect of creation in revolting terms. More than a few have been ready to describe man as excrement. Many humanists have shared this view, and the transcendentalists were very much prone to it and sought to elevate themselves above matter. In the early 1950s, a very prominent clergyman enjoyed declaring dramatically to congregations and to conference groups, quote, In God's sight, you are all dung. End quote. According to Scripture, God can be angry with man, and he can and often does delight in man, Job 1, 8, 2, and 3. But he does not regard man as excrement, but as a creature, fallen or redeemed, made in his image, Genesis 1, 26, and hence an aspect of his glorious creation. Moreover, David, inspired of God, tells us, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Psalm 139.14 The fall is not normative nor eternal, but God's creative purpose is. To sing mournfully of change and decay is not godly. Change or time is God's purpose for the development of His kingdom and man's exercise of dominion. It is in time that man is redeemed and reorders his life and world in terms of God's word. Decay is an aspect of the fall, but it also prepares the way for those things which can neither decay nor be shaken. Hebrews 12, 27 and 28. Charnel House theology, however, veers towards Neoplatonism and Manichaeanism in its contempt for the world. It identifies holiness not with God's law, with faith and obedience, but with pointless spiritual exercises. In this, it is closer to yoga than to scripture. Moreover, Charnel House theology refuses to face up to and spiritualizes into meaninglessness all passages of scripture which speak of the triumph of God's kingdom and covenant people in time. For example, Isaiah 2, 1-4 speaks of a glorious world peace. Isaiah 65.20 speaks of a restored longevity before the end of the world. Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34 describes a world so thoroughly under Christ's dominion through His people that evangelism is no longer necessary. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. Isaiah 19.18 declares that even in the strongholds of God's enemies, typified by Egypt, five out of six shall be the Lord's. Micah 4, 1 through 7 is a vivid account of world peace, every man rejoicing under his vine, arbor, and fig tree. Instead of a charnel house, the Bible sees creation as manifesting God's majesty and glory. Psalm 19, 1 through 6. The response of the psalmist, David, to all the glory of creation is to find his own God-ordained place, therein by faith and obedience. And he turns joyfully to the law of the Lord. Psalm 19, 7-14 We cannot without sin despise God's creation nor the majesty of the material, which, like all of God's works, manifests His glory. Romans 1, 20 To despise God's creation is to despise its Maker, the Lord of hosts. Section 3 Creation and Providence Under the influence of paganism earlier, and since the time of Hegel, at least, because of the dogma of evolution, Many people see the universe as a cold, mechanical, and empty force. Vitalism has seen a tendency and a moving force in the universe, but it is non-personal and essentially mindless. It manifests direction and purpose in retrospect, as a result of chance and blind urges, not as a self-conscious and decreed will. In such a worldview, the universe has produced man, together with a billion and one other things but is unconscious of man and indifferent to him. Tomorrow, a wandering star, asteroid, comet, or some other cosmic body may mindlessly destroy the earth and man. 
those who would hold that such an accident is unlikely or impossible ground their opinion not in some absolute purpose and plan, but in a theory of electromagnetics and other impersonal and mindless forces. Humanistic man thus faces a blind and cold universe, which is not truly alive, and is most certainly destined for cosmic death and collapse. In such a cosmos, man is clearly alone. A universal conflict of interests prevails, and because no absolute and universal mind and purpose binds all things together, all things are in tension, if not in struggle or at war. William Butler Yeats, in his poem, The Second Coming, summarized the modern mood tellingly. Quote, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. End quote. In a world in which things fall apart by nature, man too falls apart. In the empty and meaningless world of modern thought, the doctrine of providence has become remote and has receded even from the mind of the ostensible believers. To be scientific means to view reality as a cold business of weights and measures, which is best known by scientific instruments rather than scripture. Science is contrasted to religion, as though science represents an intelligent and realistic view of things, whereas religion offers merely the blindness of faith. Of course, all thinking rests on pre-theoretical presuppositions, so that faith is the foundation of science as much as of religion. Modern scientific theory is the outworking of a humanistic religion, not of observation or testing. It is a manifestation of faith, not reason, so that the conflict between science and Christianity is a religious war, not a battle between science and superstition. Churchmen, however, as well as men generally, have been heavily influenced by the Hegelian-Darwinian perspective. As a result, churchmen may profess to believe the Bible from cover to cover, but in practice, they move as though the world belonged to Darwin rather than to the triune God. Even where men are deep in religious experiences, they are commonly remote to the providence of God and to His government and law. Not surprisingly, in import, many theologies see the government of God as withdrawn from the world, as though creation could exist or continue for a second apart from God's sovereign decree and government. Because God and His providence are remote to modern churchmen, they see immediacy and relevancy in preaching in experimentalism, not theology. This means more emphasis on being born again, a product, rather than on the objective fact and cause, God's work of atonement and justification, on His sovereign act of electing grace. Too doctrinal a sermon is held to be remote because God is seen as remote. If a doctrinal sermon is preached, it is abstract because God is seen as abstracted from this world. The Reformation saw a very strong and heavy emphasis on objective doctrine. At the same time, the Reformers were strongly and intensely involved in the social and political scene and in the cure of souls. All this was seen as intimately and radically related. In the 17th century, we can see the rise of introspection, the emphasis on the psychology of conversion as against the theology thereof, and the emphasis on the subjective as against the objective infiltrate the church. The older objective approach came to be regarded in time as dead orthodoxy and scholasticism. While some elements of scholasticism are here and there discernible, usually this accusation means that the objective facts of God's nature and revelation are given priority over subjective perspectives and experiences. Certainly, the common charge that the Westminster standards are scholastic is evidence not of any truth with regard to those documents, but to the strident subjectivism and or existentialism of the critics. The doctrine of creation requires us logically to have a God-centered and objective worldview. In a lonely universe, with man as a sole thinker, man can become subjective because he is the only intelligent point of reference. All else is at best a blind order, or perhaps a blind accidental order, and he alone can tell that tale, understand the universal meaninglessness and the cosmic surd. Meaning, then, is obviously subjective. In such a worldview, meaning requires subjectivity, because meaning cannot exist elsewhere by definition. Relevance in every area of life means subjectivity. If, as modern philosophy holds, the world is man's will and idea, then to abandon subjectivity is to abandon 
relevance, meaning, and truth. If, however, the doctrine of creation is exactly what Genesis 1 declares it to be, then subjectivism is a delusion. Any primary emphasis on my thinking, my logic, or my experience is then an emphasis on a delusion. But the reality of things is God's absolute and objective creation. Not only then is a subjective emphasis a delusion, but it is the delusion of sin. If an evolutionary and subjective worldview prevails, for example, if the subjectivism of modern philosophy and modern life and religion prevails, then it logically follows that the government of all things is not upon God's shoulders, but man's. We then have humanism and the belief in the sovereignty and ultimacy of man. In religion, this means that man can say no to God and can reject God's efforts to redeem man. Man, in his sovereign, free will, can bar the door to God's plans and purposes. In such a perspective, no consistent doctrine of providence is possible. For the non-church humanists, some vague purpose or direction in evolution can be assumed by faith, for example, that it is upwards evolution and not devolution. That future course, however, is at best problematic, and it may mean the elimination of man as another kind of dinosaur. A strictly biblical doctrine of creation not only logically requires an objective rather than subjective worldview, a theology rather than an anthropology, but it also requires a high doctrine of providence, Isaiah tells us of the Messiah, The government shall be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 The God who is totally the creator of all things is also totally the determiner and the governor thereof. Providence, the Greek word pronoia, Acts 24, 2, sums up in a word God's government, guidance, care, and purposive direction of all his creation. Pronoia means literally perceiving beforehand and is thus closely related to foreknowledge and predestination. However, foreknowledge and predestination stress God's direction in history of the acts of all men and of all natural phenomena. The purpose of providence is to affect God's eternal purpose in creation, and it does so infallibly, so that all things move to their determined end to set forth God's purpose, justice, and holiness. This means, as Grintz has pointed out, quote, Hence there is a connection between providence and the principle of reward and punishment. End quote. As Grintz points out, paganism held to a fixed order in the universe which was above the gods. The gods were themselves products of the universe, not its governors. Providence means rather God's unlimited and total control over all creation, and also his personal relation with all men and with all things, without exception. It means, moreover, that neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, and all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4.13 God's providence is cosmic. It embraces the whole of creation. It is national, in that it controls the destinies of all nations, peoples, tribes, and tongues. It is personal extending to every man in every age of history. It is natural, in that it includes the flowers and grass of the field, and the sparrow. It is total, because he is the sovereign Lord and creator. As Grintz notes, quote, It can be said that the entire Bible is a record of divine providence, whether general or individual. End quote. In Psalms and in Proverbs, the doctrine of providence is set forth with respect to the details of our lives and actions. Proverbs 1633 declares, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Nothing is outside God's government and providence. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21.1 All things are governed by God's providence in terms of God's objective and holy purpose, not in terms of man's subjective judgments and pleasure. Man's pleasure comes, in any true sense, in enjoying and glorifying God, who is ever mindful of his own, and who is the eternal judge of all things. Thus Solomon counsels, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou, that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Ecclesiastes 11.9 
This means that, because God is the Lord, there is no inconsequential act in all of creation. Romans 8.28 makes clear that God uses every event to his own good purpose, so that even man's wrath and evil shall praise him. For example, work to God's purpose and glory, Psalm 76.10. As a result, God's purpose can never be frustrated, and all things work together for evil to them who deny the Lord. Let all their wickedness come before thee, and do unto them, as thou hast done unto me for all my transgressions. For my sighs are many, and my heart is faint. Lamentations 1.22 For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. Obadiah 15 Call together the archers against Babylon. All ye that bend the bow, camp against it round about. Let none thereof escape. Recompense her according to her work, according to all that she hath done. Do unto her, for she hath been proud against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. Jeremiah fifty twenty nine. Because the universe is a universe of total meaning, and that total meaning is entirely the ordained purpose and decree of the absolute and sovereign God, the covenant people of the Lord, have a glorious assurance in the face of all struggles, adversities, and attacks. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Isaiah 54.17 Clearly, only where the doctrine of God's providence is an essential aspect of a man's life is a true Sabbath possible. A man may cease from his labors, but he cannot rest in the Lord until or unless he relies firmly on God's providence. Section 4. The Joy of Creation in Providence One of the problems in the life of the Christian synagogue or church is the dualism between the pulpit and the classroom. Theology tends to be coldly abstract, so that the very thought of dealing with the joy of creation in providence would impress most theologians as a homiletical subject for pulpit preaching rather than for systematic theology. It is apparently felt that joy has no place in their theologies. On the other hand, the pulpit has its own kind of abstractionism, in this case not rational, as with the theologians, but emotional. Too much preaching is full of sweet nothings, exhortations designed to promote the life of the institution, and an absence of systematic biblical, theological exposition. Just as Neoplatonism divided the world wrongly between the spiritual and the material, so too many churchmen divide reality into a world of abstractions on the one hand and a world of feelings on the other. Supposedly, the common man is beyond the ability to grasp the rational and the intellectual, whereas the theological mind places itself as supposedly beyond the sway of the emotional and the partisan sweeps of feelings. But man, unless self-warped or culturally conditioned to a false self-evaluation, does not have two beings or two natures but one. His emotional and intellectual grasp of things is not a divided thing, but is one form of cognition. Man's thinking and feeling are a unity, even under the layers of warping and false self-evaluation. A man's aptitudes, capability, or sterility are in evidence in all his being. Thus, to have a grasp of the meaning of providence is a matter not only of godly logic, but also of godly joy. If, for us, providence is only a matter of logical ideas, then joy, too, is a concept and no more. If, however, providence is for us the reality of God's total government, then our life, in terms of that faith, is one of joy. In Psalm 47, we have a beautiful, moving, and profound insight into the joy of creation in providence. O clap your hands, all ye people, shout unto God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. He shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob whom he loved. God is gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises unto our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing ye praises with understanding. God reigneth over the nations. God sitteth upon the throne of his holiness. The princes of the people are gathered together, 
even the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong unto God. He is greatly exalted. This psalm celebrates the absolute kingship of God over all the earth, over all nations. It refers generally to the conquest of Canaan and to all the victories of God's people over the enemies of God. The inheritance of the covenant people is ordained and chosen by God, even as the judgment of all covenant breakers is of His choosing and determination. The Lord never stands idly by. He is the total determiner of all things. He celebrates His victories on behalf of His people before all the world, in all the display of a conqueror subduing all enemies. God's people rejoice in all this, knowing that God is king over all the peoples, and He shall, in His own time, subdue them all to His service and glory. The rulers and the peoples of the earth all belong unto the Lord as His creation and possession. In His providence, God proves Himself to be the king of all the earth. As Leopold noted, quote, Whoever the mighty ones on the earth may be, here called rulers of the earth, they belong to God, are under His control, whether they know it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not. So all things are under His absolute dominion. End quote. Psalm 19 celebrates God's providence in creation. All of creation, including man and man's world, is under God's providence. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Psalm 19.1 The way for man to realize the joy and peace of that providential majesty is by the law of the Lord, which is perfect, converting the soul. Psalm 19.7 The modern humanists in and out of the church are often critical of the doctrine of providence. Why, they ask, does so much evil prevail in the world if God's government is so wise and good? Their question betrays them. Evil prevails not so much in the world around us as in man. It prevails in the world because the very ground is cursed for man's sake. Genesis 3.17 Leviticus 26.21-43 Deuteronomy 28.15-26, etc. But God's providence uses even man's greatest sin to redound to His glory and purpose. John 11, 47-53 The humanist and the Christian here hold radically different positions. The humanist holds either to the natural goodness of man or else to his moral neutrality. The cause of evil is thus in forces outside of man or extraneous or unessential to him. Evil is thus either a stage on the road to maturity or else it is an environmental factor. For some, no evil at all exists. In this perspective, evil is outside of man and therefore supremely in the great outsider, God. God is seen as the disturber of man's peace, and freedom from God is viewed as an essential step towards man's liberation. The Christian cannot agree with a humanist assessment of man. For him, man in Adam is fallen and unregenerated, and therefore the source of sin and evil. We cannot, however, give the same priority to the doctrine of the fall, which humanists give to their doctrine of man. First, man is not the ultimate. And second, the fall is not man's normal estate, but his deformation. Third, the humanist, depending on his particular line of reasoning, will say on the one hand that man's environment is basic and conditions man, and, on the other hand, that man is his own ultimate and lord. Both perspectives are wrong and false. Man is responsible, but God is the ultimate determiner of all things, so that, as against the humanist's emphasis on man and the environment, ours must be on God and His providence. We cannot keep the argument in the realm of anthropology, because God is the Lord. It is to the doctrine of God and His providence that we must turn to counter the humanistic emphasis on man, however man may be viewed. Thus, the doctrine of creation and providence makes clear that the universe cannot be understood in terms of itself, and the same applies to man. It is a creation, and it is therefore the handiwork and revelation of its maker, the triune God. It is not only a created rather than a self-generated realm, but it is a governed rather than a self-governing realm. Hence the joy of creation is providence. Creation moves in terms of an absolute and foreordained decree of predestination. It is neither haphazard nor purposeless, but determined and unerringly moves to God's ordained end 
and under his total direction. God is never the loser, nor are his covenant people because of his providential ways. Romans 8.28 Hence Paul can say, Rejoice! Philippians 4.4 Nehemiah's words still stands, The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 8.10 Section 5 Neoplatonism and Providence A major force in the undermining of faith in providence has been the spiritualizing influences in the life of the church, which can be summed up as Neoplatonism. For Neoplatonism, as, for example, with Plotinus, reality is in Platonic terms seen as made up of two alien substances, spirit and matter. Man's spirit or soul is a part of the world soul, and man must transcend the things of this world and seek union with the one, the world soul. The more intelligible and rational reality becomes, the more spiritual and divine it is, because it has risen above the dark and meaningless realm of matter. Medieval and modern mysticism is obviously very Neoplatonic. So too is Hegel's philosophy and its heirs, from Marx to Dewey. For the modern heirs of Hegel, the idea or spirit is now man, who must impose his mind on a mindless world if that world is to have any meaning. For the mystic, providence can exist only as a way provided for the soul to flee from or rise above this world into God or the world soul. For the sons of Hegel, providence is man's rational imposition of a pattern or government on the chaos of life in the world. Providence is thus then not an aspect of God's rule, but of man's government. The modern state is thus a welfare state. Another way of saying it is a providential state. The modern state and its agencies are earnestly and intensely concerned that total providence become a living reality in the life of man. In large measure, the politics of the modern state is the politics of providence, because the modern state is less and less under a politics and a polity, but rather manifests a theology of the state as the new God on earth. The first paragraph of the Westminster Confession of Faith of Providence declares, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least. Nehemiah 9.6, Hebrews 1.3, Psalm 135.6, Matthew 10.29, 30 and 31, Acts 17.25 and 28, Matthew 6.26 and 30, Job chapters 38 through 41. By his most wise and holy providence, Proverbs 15.3, 2 Chronicles 16.9, Psalm 145.17, 104.24, according to his infallible foreknowledge, Acts 15.18, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11, Psalm 33.11, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy, Ephesians 3.10, Romans 9.17, Psalm 145. Because it refuses to recognize God as the Lord, this is exactly what the modern humanistic state seeks to do, to govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by the state's most wise and holy providence, by means of its total government. In the trials of Christian schools and churches in the 1970s on, by state courts, it was clear that, to the state officials, the remedy for all problems is the providence or total government of the state. By definition, for them, the state is the answer, all wise and all holy. Evidences of radical lawlessness in the state schools and a breakdown of learning could not shake their faith. For them, the answer to all problems is the total government of the state. Men must have providence. If they will not have it from God, they will seek it from the state or from themselves. Most evangelical churchmen have not followed the route of either the mystics or the statists. Their Neoplatonism has been a spiritualization of the Bible. The Old Testament supposedly represents a lower and a more materialistic dispensation of law and nation, and the New Testament a higher dispensation of grace in the church. This means that man must now rise above God's law into a higher way and be more spiritual than Abraham, David, Isaiah, and other Old Testament saints. Such a position withdraws providence into a government, not of dominion, 
but of purely spiritual goals, restricted to saving souls and to preserving them from the evils of a materialistic world. Evil, however, is not metaphysical. It cannot be made a property of matter. Evil is a moral fact, and man's total being is involved in sin. The redemption of man is not merely of one aspect of his being, but of the whole man, and it culminates in the resurrection of the dead. The goal of providence is not merely to preserve the convert from harm or evil in this world, although it can include such a rule. Many saints, however, are slaughtered like sheep by their and God's enemies. Romans 8.36 Providence is not man-centered, but rather God-centered. The Westminster Larger Catechism number 18 made this clear. Question. What are God's works of providence? Answer. God's works of providence are His most holy, Psalm 145.17, wise, Psalm 104.24, Isaiah 28.29, and powerful, preserving, Hebrews 1.3, and governing all His creatures, Psalm 103.19, Job chapters 38-41, ordering them and all their actions, Matthew 10.29 and 30, Genesis 45.7, Psalm 135.6, to His own glory, Romans 11.36, Isaiah 63.14. The focus is on God's glory and His purposes, on God's kingdom and sovereignty, not on man. God's providence is God's total government for His own purposes and glory, and man and the universe were created to serve that purpose, not to be served by it. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11.36 When churchmen withdraw providence to a government of the soul's progress, they create a vacuum in the world at large. The whole of creation requires providence. If God's providence be denied, alternate doctrines of providence are created. Pietism, by withdrawing God's providence to the soul's progress, prepared the way for Hegel and for the doctrine of a world spirit evolving a man-centered providence. Darwin applied Hegel's evolutionary doctrine of providence to biology. The universe, a product of mindless chance, had by the miracles of chance variation evolved to its present state. Other thinkers, from Marx, John Stuart Mill, Dewey, and on to the present, saw the logical conclusions. Man must now control evolution to bring an intelligent providence, not an accidental one, to bear on biology and society. This requires playing God with the life, society, and government of man. It means abortion and attempts to create life and to clone. It means a totalitarian state whose providence or total government must control all creatures' actions and things, from the greatest even to the least. The state now seeks to create a new man, either out of the old man or out of new materials, and to govern its creation absolutely or providentially. This attempt of statist humanism cannot be challenged by a church under the influence of Neoplatonism. It then denies God's total government or providence. Only as the Christian community again sets forth God as the only Creator and Lord, and therefore the absolute governor of all things, can it displace by faith and battle the humanistic providential state. It will then triumph, because it will work in terms of God's providence, not man's.